Good evening, Valley Bible Church. Thanks for the ladies helping us. That's an old, uh, not old, a couple years old uh, vacation Bible school song that we did. And so the girls coming up and helping to, uh, the, 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 this kind of a kid song to, to do the hand motions. Appreciate them doing that. Good to see you this morning, um, this evening. Good evening. Welcome to Valley Bible Church. Uh, just don't get used to that. Um, you know, doesn't it seem like a lot of people here? There are not really a lot of people here, but uh, um, many, many years ago, the very first church that I pastored was in a little town called Arco, Idaho. And uh, this has been a good crowd. Would it be a good crowd for that church? Uh, pretty average on a Sunday morning, maybe a few more. By the way, the name of that church? Valley Bible Church. First church that I pastored, yeah. So it's good to see you, and uh, we are uh, continuing in the book of John. Before we, we read the scripture, uh, let's pray and ask God's guidance, shall we? We're grateful to you, O oh God, for the incredible beauty of this day, and indeed it was, continues to be. The sun rose and the sun will set because you have willed it to be so. For you order all things, you call the seasons into being, and we recognize their passing as something that is a sign of your faithfulness, as it should be. Great is thy faithfulness. We thank you for the faithfulness of your Son, Jesus Christ, to be obedient by humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that we might be redeemed from this lost and broken world, that we might be able to approach you this evening in spirit and in truth, and worship you in such a way. And so we do pray that you would fill our hearts with a spirit of expectancy, that you will teach us, that you will change us as we look into the word. And so we look there now, Father, approaching you, clothed in the, the righteousness of Christ alone, for we know that there is no good thing that dwells in us. So we come in Christ gladly and joyfully, knowing that you love us as your children. And so, as we look to the Word, would you open our, our, our ears, our eyes, our hearts and minds to understand what you have for each one of us in that truth. And these things we pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. John 8, and our reading is 21 through 30, so I ask you to turn to John chapter 8 in your Bibles, and uh, verses 21 through 30, and would you please stand? Um, we do that because we want to, we want us to be on the edge of our seats, leaning forward into the Word of God and expecting that He's going to speak to us and do all that we can to pay attention, give more, closer attention to what He has said to us. John 8, verse 21. Then He said again to them, I go away and you will seek Me. And you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, 
What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And God's people said, Please be seated. Does your origin determine your destiny? Does the place you are from, where you come from, determine your spiritual destination? I mentioned I was at church in Arco, Idaho. I came from Idaho. I'm an Idahoan by birth, Idaho spud. So since I'm from Idaho, does that mean I get to go to heaven? Do Idahoans go to heaven because they're from Idaho? How about Californians? No, okay, everybody's definitely not, no. Uh, Washingtonians. Americans. We're Americans, so we get to go to heaven, right? How about earthlings? Earth dwellers. Actually, now we're getting somewhere, right? Does your origin determine your destiny? As earth dwellers, as those who are from this place that is earthy and in this domain in which we live, Yes, where we are from, our origin does determine our destiny, which is death. It's back to this world. And we share a, a, a nature because we're part of this world. This world is broken. As you know, um, this, the domain of this world is in darkness. It is in need of change because, because of sin, which has racked the world, and it's, uh, it's uh, broken by death. And so we, we share a nature that is part of our origin. We're earthy, we're of the earth, and we're broken. But we also, from that nature, share a conduct. The things that we do come from our nature. The way we behave, the way we live, is from our origin. And that determines where we're going. We are sinners by nature, and we're sinners by choice, right? Right? By both, and so in order for us to go to the to to heaven to the the place where the Father is, there has to be uh, some kind of a change because we are citizens of this earth, and there has to be a, a change in our citizenship. But there also has to be some kind of uh, release or cleansing of our conduct of our actions because because of our nature we sin, and those have to be taken uh, in into context. And God has to to deal with our nature and change us and deal with our deeds as well. Last week we saw Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And that, that light still dominates this chapter um, because it's an, it was an astounding thing that he would say, I am the light of the world, the entire world. He's, and and he, who, he who follows me, he said, will not be in darkness, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so those who are following Jesus Christ 
um, have that light because he is the light of the world. Now, we ended in verse 20 with uh, these words. It said, these words he spoke in the treasury when he taught in the temple. We knew the, the occasion and the, and, the, and the place. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now, we, we have seen this phrase happen, uh, occur numerous times where they want to seize him, they want to grab him, they want to arrest him, but his time had not come. But why did they want to seize him at that moment? I think if we go back to verse 19, it tells us, uh, they said to Jesus, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know the father also. That was inflammatory to them. Because here it is, he's saying to the, uh, the, the leaders, of the, the religious leaders of the Jewish nation, you don't know the Father. And in order to know the Father, you have to know me. So you're asking, where is your Father? You don't even know who he is. And there, that's why it says, and they uh, no, were not able to seize him. It, does, it doesn't say that they tried to. But the implication is that they wanted to, and we're going to see in the rest of this chapter as it unfolds, there is the, these rising tensions between Jesus and the religious leaders. They're, they're, it's, going to get, uh, it's going to get more and more tense, and things are going to be more and more inflamed, that by the end of this chapter, they are literally, really going to try and kill him. They're going to try and stone him to death by the end of the chapter. So... With the rising tension, however, we see increasing light. In this passage, we see the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel by which we are saved, is coming more and more into focus. I don't know if you just noticed as we were reading it compared to what we've seen so far in the book of John. In this particular passage, the gospel comes more into focus than any other place that we have seen in John so far. He began with, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so he's still talking about us being believing disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. We're continuing to believe. But where are we following to? We know we're following Jesus, but where is he leading us? And so, first of all, in verses 21 through 24, follow Jesus to the home of the Father. Follow Jesus to the home of the Father. This is what the discussion has been about. Who, who is your Father? Where are you from? And, and he has said all along, his, he has come from his Father. His Father is in heaven. They know that. They should know that. So the, the home of the Father is the, the abode of God, the heavenly place where God resides and we are to follow Jesus there. It says in verse 21, Then he said to them, again, I go away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. I go away. He's talking about his death. And he's uh, earlier in chapter 7, you may remember, he had the same conversation with them. He said the same thing. They didn't understand it, but he said, I am going away which means he's leaving this earth, he's going to die, and you will seek me. In what sense will they seek him? Well, right now, the whole discussion that they keep having over and over again, the big question is, who is this man who is Jesus of Nazareth? 
Could he be the Messiah? Some people say that he is. And that's exactly who he's claiming to be. He said, but I'm going to die, and you're going to seek me after I'm gone. Because you're still looking for the Messiah. And that's why he says, and you will die in your sin. It will be too late. I'm going away. I'm going to die. And you're still going to be looking for the Messiah, but you're lost. You'll die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. He's going to the the place of his father. He's going to his heavenly home. He's going to his father's house. He's going back to where he came from, the glory of the father, and they can't go there. And this is the reason why. They were saying, the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Um... There are three instances in this passage where the, um, the Jews respond in some way. Um, either they say something or we, we're, we're told what their response was. <clears throat> and, and this is the first one. And in every case, they, they reveal that they just don't understand what's happening. So they say to him, surely he's not going to kill himself, will he? doesn't sound like he said that to Jesus, but it was spoken in the crowds, and that's what they, that was their assumption. He's talking about death. But they don't get it. The, the expected answer of the question, surely he will not kill himself with, will he, is no. So they didn't expect him to. I don't know whether they're being sarcastic. It's hard to know the, their tone of voice. Are they perplexed? Are they uh, casting, casting aspersions? Here's what we do know. They don't know what he's talking about. They don't have a clue. They don't realize what he's saying. Surely he's not going to kill himself, will he? Of course not. Here's the irony, though. This is rich. They're going to kill him. He's not going to commit suicide. They are going to kill him. In fact, there's another layer of irony in that, uh, um, no, he's not going to take his own life, but he is going to lay down his life voluntarily. And so there, in these words, there's this... uh, this rich um, prophetic irony, as uh, one writer I, I, I read said this, uh, prophetic irony, looking forward to the fact that they are the ones who are going to kill him. And they're, they're thinking he might kill himself. And then verse 23 says this, You are from below, I am from above. You are from this world, I am not of this world. He's making a distinction between them because um, uh, he has just said that they're going to die in their sin. They are already dead spiritually. They're going to die physically, and they will die in their sin. And he tells them why. It's because of their origin. Their origin does uh, determine their destiny. You are from below. I am from above. Even they understand this, you know. Which is, which is better, up or down uh, in, in the spiritual realm? Up is good, right? Down is not good. Up is heaven, down is the earth or death, down is hell, Hades, Sheol. They understand this. He speaks in directional language, but he also speaks in terms of realm, realms because he says, you are of this world, this cosmos. We saw this last week. The cosmos is this world system, and the God of this world is whom? Satan. He controls 
this world system. It is evil. It is broken. The death, the destruction, and all the mayhem going on in the world right now, this is the world system in which we happen to dwell. We are earth dwellers. And you, he said, are of this world, but I am not. He's from another realm altogether. He is from a heavenly realm. He is from his father. That's where he came from. And he, he could not make the point more clearly that you and I are different. You're from here. I'm from there. I'm going back. You're not. You'll die in your sin. So in verse 24, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. Why did I say you'll die in your sins? Because you're from the earth. Because you are in the domain of darkness. Because you are part of this cosmos, this, this world system. You are part of this realm. You are not part of the kingdom of God. Your nature is such that you are dead in sin. And that's why I said you will die in your sins. And then he adds this. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Hope. It sounds like he's being very judgmental. I mean, he's, you know, but don't you see that the gospel is coming more and more into focus? And he says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I am who? The one you're seeking. The Messiah. This is what it's all about. Who is Jesus? He's the son of God. He is deity. He is the son of man. He's the one who comes as a, as a sacrifice for us. He, he is the anointed one. He is the one who is sent from the Father with the mission to redeem the world. He is the one who comes for us. And unless you believe that he is he, that that's who he is, you will die in your sin. And that's what he says to them. So the gospel, you can see, is... Uh, it cuts two ways, doesn't it? It's a two-edged sword to those who believe. Because if you turn it around, the converse is true. He says, unless you believe in your sins, uh, unless you believe in, in that I am he, you will die in your sins. But if you turn that around, if you do believe that I am he, you will live. And so he's preaching the gospel to them. He's giving them the good news. At the same time, it's, it's dividing because it is, uh, it is judging their hearts as sinful and, and, and determining uh, their destiny because they are from this origin of this earthly place. But still the hope is there. He's, he's preaching the gospel. It's a very gracious thing that he's telling them. This is the truth. This is how you avoid dying in your sins. Um, by believing in me. Therefore, because you are citizens of this dead, sinful system, that's why I said to you, you will die in your sins. And they must believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. By the way, um, as I was studying this passage, I, I could see that things are coming more into focus in terms of the gospel. That it's, it's, You can see that it's becoming more and more clear more than any time in the, uh, in the, in the book of John. And I just did a, a quick search uh, because... I notice he said in verse 21, uh, I go away and you will die in your sin, That's singular. Verse 24, therefore I say that you will die in your sins, plural, and unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So three times in a few verses he talks about sin. And I, and I got thinking, well, when was the last time Jesus talked about sin in the book of John? I did a quick search. 
There are only four times previous to this that Jesus has even mentioned sin. Two of those are in the passage of the woman caught in, in adultery, which uh, we, we think likely does not even uh, probably belong in this section of the book, in the book of John, in which case there are only two instances of, of uh, the word sin being used in the book of John so far. And the first is John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the man that he healed in Bethsaida when he said to him, You've been made well, go and sin no more. Two times. Now we have three times in a few verses. The gospel is coming into focus for us. We, We begin to see, because so far he has talked about believing in Jesus, being a believer in Jesus, being always believing in Jesus. Even when you look at John chapter 3, which is a key passage of salvation, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, this whole discussion about being born again never mentions sin. Never mention sin. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have have everlasting life. And he goes on with the rest of talking about judgment and death and life, but he does not mention sin. And we get to this portion, and now he's saying this, as uh, Blake McKinley says, he's putting the pig on the table. (laughs) It's about sin. It's not just about believing, it's about believing what? It's about believing whom? It's a believing that, that he is the Messiah, the one who will take away our sin. And so the gospel is becoming so clear, and, and, and it should be clear to those who are listening as well. So here are some lessons. In our natural human state, We are literally worlds apart from Jesus. Literally. In our natural state of our origin, whether you're from Idaho, Washington, America, whatever, we are earthy. And we are worlds apart from the realm of Jesus, where he is from. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, his sinlessness and his perfections. He is... He is above and beyond all things in his perfection. And we are living in this dark, broken world. And and the chasm is unscalable between our natural state and that of Jesus. Can't get there without him. It is impossible to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps because... He is not of this world. He's of a totally different realm. And unless we believe in him, we'll die in our sins. And so the second lesson goes with it. That is this. In order to dwell in the home of the Father, we are in need, we are in need of a change of our nature and a cleansing of our sin. The very nature that we're born with of sin We are in sin. We have a sin nature. We're born into it. And our nature results in our conduct. That's why we sin. Because we're born into sin. I sin because I'm from Idaho. I was born on this earth. I come by it naturally, just like all of us, no matter where we're born. We our, our conduct comes out of our nature. Our nature is sin. Our conduct is sins. And both have to be dealt with. We are citizens of this earthly place. 
and we need a change of citizenship to a heavenly citizenship, but we also need to have our sins dealt with. We need to be forgiven. And thirdly, this can only happen through our trust, our reliance, our faith, our embracing and believing in the truth of Jesus as our Messiah. It's the only hope. There is no hope. You cannot scale and bridge that gap. He's far beyond us. It's another world. It's another category. We can't even begin to see it. And so we must follow Jesus to the abode of heaven, the abode of the Father, the home of the Father, following him by faith. And that's what it means to be children of light. Then in verses 25 and 26, we follow Jesus by the words of the Father. Follow Jesus by the words, the word of God, the scriptures. He gave the example to us that uh, he's always trusting in, in the words of his Father. He's always saying, I, I'm, I only say what the Father has given me to say. He says that over and over and over again, and he's the example to us. You know, you know Jesus, you never see him... Uh, saying, you know, last week I was uh, I was reading Socrates, and you know he, you know he had some good things to say about um, how we live on this earth. He doesn't do that. I'm not saying you shouldn't be educated and read things like that. All I'm saying, the example that Jesus gave to us was he always demonstrated reliance on the the very words of his Father, which we have the Scriptures. So it says in verse 25, so they were saying to him, and this is the second uh, response of the religious leaders, and they were saying to him, who are you? And the emphasis is on you. Who are you? And we don't, again, it's, we don't have the voice inflection. We don't know, are they being sarcastic? Are they saying, well, who do you think you are? Are they, are they perplexed? Are they befuddled? Are they bewildered? Who are you? I, I don't know. Here's what we do know. They don't know who he is. <laughs> Thus the question. They don't know who he is. Who are you? They, they do not get it. And look at his answer. What have I been saying to you from the beginning? He has been consistent all along. Everything that he has said, uh, they've had previous conversations years before, a couple of years before, and, and he is always says, I was sent from my father. I do nothing of my own initiative. I do what he tells me to do. I say what he say, tells me to say. I and the father are one. We are in this thing together. And ah, that's what I've been telling you all along. So he has been nothing but consistent all along. And so his answer to the question, who are you? is just what I've always been telling you all along. If you don't, you don't understand it, obviously, um, I'll try and spell it out for you once again. And he is, he is very patient and gracious with them, even though he is dealing with a lot of uh, religious hypocrisy. But his answer to the question, who are you, is just what he's always said. I am the one who was sent from the one who sent me, the Father from above. So he says in verse 26, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. I've got more to say on this. 
There's everything that I've always said in the past, but I've got more to say. To say and to judge concerning you. As Jesus says more and more and more, the truth becomes a judgment to them. They become more and more culpable for the truth, for the, the light that they have been given. He is, he is he's like a rheostat and the, the lights have been dimmed and he's turning the lights up and he's giving them more and more and more light, more and more in revelation, illumination of what the truth is. And they're becoming more and more culpable. The very light is going to judge them because they refuse to believe. So, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these things I speak to the world, not just to you, O religious leaders of Judaism, but I have a message for the entire world. I am the light of the world, he said. That was a remarkable statement. And he brings them back to this. I, I have light revelation to bring to the, all of mankind, not just, just to Israel. But he who sent me is true. Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says the Father is true. Later he's going to say that I'm going to send to you the spirit of truth. The, the Trinity is involved in, in all of this. And he's saying, the one who sent me, he is true. You want to know who I am? I'm, I'm from the one who is true. Uh, code language for God the Father. They should understand that. These are the things that I speak to the world. So why don't they understand? Why don't they understand what he's saying? Well, here's a lesson. Those who are spiritually confused are often spiritually blind. I mean, we can get confused about things. I get confused sometimes about the scriptures, and you know, I've been a Christian for a long time. But those who are spiritually confused often are spiritually blind. And when you have these guys over and over again saying, "What are you talking about? Who are you? Where'd you come from? Where's your father?" And Jesus is very patient. I've been saying this all along. Have you ever talked to someone like that? Have you ever witnessed to a person or had a spiritual conversation and you're trying to help them to understand spiritual things and and, and God's love for them and the the gospel? And and it's like, hello, is anybody home? And there's just almost a glaze over their their eyes. They just do not understand. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but a natural man born of this earth from Idaho, Washington, America, what, you know, the deal. You know the thing. (laughs) But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That person that we talk to sometimes, they cannot understand it because it is from another realm. We have entered into that realm of Jesus by our faith in him. Our responsibility is to turn up the light, to proclaim the light, to give them the truth of the gospel. But ultimately, the Spirit of God is going to have to open their eyes. As we, as we saw again last week, Second Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelieving. People are literally spiritually blinded, and that's why they are often confused.
But our second lesson is that God graciously provides abundant and sufficient revelation to the identity and the mission of Jesus Christ. His revelation is abundant and it is sufficient for people to believe so that one day those who reject him will be without excuse. Because when they look at the world, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. Day to day, poor, poor speech. You go outside, you see the, the sun coming up in the morning. You see the, the moon coming up in the evening. You look at the, the beautiful fall colors and the mountains and the streams and you must conclude there is a God and you're a fool to say that there is no God. So that's general revelation, but then we have revelation, special revelation from the Word of God, and here in America, the opportunity to understand, to know the gospel of Jesus Christ is plentiful. It is abundant, and it is graciously given, and it is sufficient for people to believe. So he he graciously provides multiple opportunities for people to believe and to understand. But the light of that truth that Jesus provides is both life-giving and judging. Because those who do not respond to the light are responsible for that. Third, Jesus was consistent in speaking the words of the Father, and so should we. He continually, uh, just go back and read the words of Jesus in the book of John. If you have a red letter Bible, go back and do that. And you'll see, he says this. How many times has he said, the one who sent me, I was sent from above, consistently talking about who his father is, what his mission is. I'm one with the father. I say what he wants me to say. I do what he says he, he, I should do. Very, very consistent. There's something to be said for consistency and faithfulness and reliability and unwavering dedication to the truth of God's word. Because he always went back to not Socrates or Plato, but he always went back to this. I'm just saying what, what my father told me to say. It's pretty simple. That's all we need to do. Because the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And the gospel is powerful to save It is powerful to save. And so we, too, should rely on the sufficiency of the truth of God and his word as he's given to us in the same way that Jesus did, because he did. Now, in verses 27 through 30, follow Jesus in seeking to please the Father. Follow Jesus in seeking to please the Father. You know the story when he was baptized and the heavens opened up and the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am pleased. I am well pleased with him. And he was pleased with his Son. His his Son was obedient. He sent his Son on a mission and and his Son completed the mission that he sent him to do and, and he was pleasing to his Father. Verse 27 they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So here's the third reference to the group of people. Um, Jesus perceives this. They don't understand what he's talking about. They just said, uh, they said to him before, where is your Father? They said, who are you? They don't understand this. And they don't understand that he's talking about his Father. So, verse 28, because they don't understand this, Jesus said, 
When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Lifting up the Son of Man in the first instance refers to the crucifixion because Christ would be raised. Reminds us when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. And he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So Christ is lifted up uh, at, in crucifixion, but there is more to it than that. The, that's why he says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he who, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of Man. Um, I don't think that they're going to recognize this, that when he's on the cross, they're going to go, oh, now we get it. He's from the Father, and he's the Son of God. That's not what Jesus is saying to them. By the way, notice, um, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said, um, the Son of Man must be lifted up in the passive. This is something that's going to happen to him. But what does he say to to this group in verse 28? When you lift up the Son of Man, when you crucify him. The lifting up of the Son of Man involves the crucifixion, the the humiliation of the crucifixion. He humbled himself to, to death, even to the point of death on a cross. But that humiliation was important for his raising from the dead and his glorification 40 days later being ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. So the entire work of redemption from crucifixion to exaltation is the lifting up of the Son of Man. So that's why it says in the book of Revelation, when he comes back, they will look on on the one that they pierced. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not going to be at the crucifixion that these guys are going to come to their senses He already said, you're going to die in your sins because I'm going to go away and you're going to be looking for some other Messiah. But one day you're going to know that I am the Son of Man, that I am He, I am the one sent from the Father. And he says, and and he goes on again like he very consistently has said, I do nothing on my own initiative. I speak these things as the Father taught me. They don't understand that he's talking about the Father, but he says... Here it is. It's the Father. I don't do anything on my own. I'm not out here uh, tooting my own horn. I'm not going my own way. I'm not making my own decisions. I'm only doing what the Father has told me to do and say. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. The Father never leaves his children alone. If you are a child of God, you will never be left alone You will never be on your own. In the same way that he was with Jesus, he is with you as well. And he will never, ever abandon his children. And that you can be sure of. And I am with him. He is with me. He says, he sent me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He always does the things that are pleasing to the Father. He is the sinless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, This is speaking of his sinlessness. He always does the things that are pleasing to his Father. 
<clears throat> but, you know, when we talk about the sinlessness of Christ or the impeccability of Christ, we, we often think of it in, in a negative sense, uh, that he never sinned. But this is not what it says. It doesn't say that he never sinned. It says this is what he always does. Righteousness is not just the absence of sin. It is the presence, it is the positive presence of, of what we do, the righteous acts, the things that are good, the things that are right. He always did what was right. He always obeyed his father and mother and demonstrated proper respect for authority. He always put others before himself. He always had a kind word, even when people were mean to him. He was always forgiving. He was always patient. He was always at peace. He was always patient with people. He was always in control of his passions and his emotions. And so when we talk about the sinlessness of Christ, it's not just what he didn't do. It's what he did. He lived the life of a, of a perfect son of God who always pleased his father in everything that he did. So our lessons are these. Jesus never ceases to give glory to the Father, and neither should we. Every chance he gets, he's, did I tell you about my Father? He never says much about himself other than the fact that I'm only doing what the Father says. He's always pointing back to the Father. It's not me. It's not what I said. It's not my initiative. It's not my idea. It's not my words. It's always the Father's. And that's how we should live our lives as well, always pointing to the Father his greatness, his attributes, his work, all that he has done. And it's not about us. It's not about our church. It's not about our programs. But it's all about him making light of him, shining the light upon the greatness of our God. As the Son did, so should we. Secondly, if Jesus could do nothing apart from the Father, neither can we. I don't do anything of my own initiative, he said. Why would we think that we can? Why would we think that we're better or different than Jesus, that, that we, can, we can just act independent of God? Of course we can't. Of course we shouldn't. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens me in, in terms of righteousness, righteous living. And we, we labor and we strive according to the power that works within us, that all that he's given to us, the presence of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the new nature and one another, but it's all in dependence upon Him. But we, we should never, we must not ever try and act independently of God. Jesus never did. Why would we? We don't have to. And we should not. And third, as Jesus always did what was pleasing to the Father, so should we. He always did what was pleasing to the Father. That should be our ambition as well, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That should be uh, the, uh, what we set our mind upon. That's what, what we're all about, pleasing God. And we know what displeases him, don't we? We know when he's not pleased. And we know the things that please him. And that should be our ambition to please God and to live a life when he smiles at us and, and he's happy with his children. Those of you who have kids, you know what it's like when your kids please you and you know what it's like when they displease you. 
We have a heavenly Father that we are to please because we love him and out of gratitude. I was thinking about this my, for myself this week, and, and you know, what does this, this mean? I, one of the things that I am consistent in is reading my Bible every day and praying every day. And in my prayer, I always pray from Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in, in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And I pray for God's Spirit to wash over me and to reveal any darkness, any sin in my life. And you know what? Most days I can say, well, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't get drunk. I didn't rob any banks. I didn't steal. And most days I can say, I didn't overeat. I didn't get angry. I didn't cheat. I didn't defraud anybody. But I didn't do anything. You see, the difference between the absence of what you did, that our life is not just built on our Christianity, our spirituality, is not just what you don't do. It's what we do. Righteousness is not just the absence of sin against it. It is doing right things for God. It is being involved in in all of those things that please God and in, in all that we do throughout the day. And so we're not just okay if I can't think of anything, God, that I did wrong. But you do did you do anything well? Did you do anything that pleased him? Did you do anything right? Or was it just, yeah, I'm just getting along with, with not doing the major sins. So we should always seek to please the Father as Christ did. The passage ends with verse 30. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Um, a surprising conclusion? Not really when you recognize that the gospel has come more clearly into focus in this passage. Uh, talking about sin, the Son of Man being lifted up, and, and uh, so many things that Jesus has made very clear. You have to believe that I am he, or you will die in your sins. And some believe in, in him. Were they true believers? Um, some perhaps, some perhaps not. We'll find out in coming weeks. But here is the thing for us. I think we can bank on it. When the true identity and the mission of Jesus are fully and completely and adequately revealed, people will believe. Our responsibility is to make it known, make him known, just as Jesus did. Um, we make it known, we reveal it through our consistent, faithful proclamation of the Word of God. We make it known through um, our lives being light and, and being pleasing to the Father so that others see the light in us. And we also make it known in communion. It's the gospel in a nutshell or in a goblet, if you will. And so um, as we partake of communion... This evening, the gospel has come into focus for us. And the gospel is, uh, is uh, the story told in us partaking together of this bread and this cup because we are saying we do believe that he is the Messiah. We have been transferred from the domain of darkness. We are no longer of this earth. Our destiny is now somewhere else. Our origin was such that if unless something happened, we were going to end up back down here 
dead in our sin, but he's released us by the bread, by the cup, by his body, and by his blood. So think about that as we play for just a moment.